grief. So much of Job is learning to um, lean into suffering and grief, which are not normal movements, I think, for most of us. And, um, and so this poem is, is really looking at kind of moving into some of that grief. Can everybody hear me? I know that sometimes the... Okay, and I'm a teacher, so I don't know how to, like, be stationary and talk. So I'll go ahead and let's just pray. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful for this time. And God, we just ask you to open our hearts and our minds to whatever it is you have for us today. Lord, uh, fill us with your spirit. God, show us and speak to each one of us of whatever it is you have for us, God. You know intimately every part of us. You know every part of our story. And God, you have been there from the beginning, that you knit us together in our mother's womb, and you have known us from the very, very start. And so, God, I just pray that you will open that awareness for us to experience your presence and to, um, to just let everyone have whatever they need today and to experience more of your love, more of your grace, more of your spirit, Lord. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So go ahead and kind of get settled and just put your feet on the floor. <coughs> Take a few breaths in. Breathe in the love of God. Breathe out any kind of worry or stress. I know Sunday mornings are crazy at our house, and so sometimes just getting here is, is a worthy accomplishment. And so you're here. Breathe in the love of God. Out any worries or distraction or busyness. Take a couple of those deep breaths. This is called Blessing for the Brokenhearted. And the quote at the top is from Henry David Thoreau. It says, there is no remedy for love but to love more. Let us agree for now that we will not say the breaking makes us stronger or that it is better to have this pain than I have done without the love. Let us promise we will not tell ourselves time will heal the wound when every day our waking opens it anew. Perhaps for now, it can be enough to simply marvel at the mystery of how a heart so broken can go on beating, as if it were made for precisely this, as if it knows the only cure for love is more of it, as if it sees the heart's sole remedy for breaking is to love still as if it trusts that its own persistent pulse is the rhythm of a blessing we cannot begin to fathom, but will save us nonetheless. So it's by Jan Richardson. Um, she's one of my favorite authors. She wrote uh, Cure for Sorrow, and it's blessings in times of grief. And it's been one of those things that when you're going through grief, and we'll get into Job in a second, that it's sometimes it's helpful to have somebody put some things into words, like really hard things. And she really kind of sits in that and hits on those really, those really deep things. And then as we get into Job, uh, so we're going to go into Elihu today. 
And Elihu is an interesting character. I think that um, last week you talked a little bit or introduced him a little bit. But he's kind of one of those drop-in characters, right? So Elihu kind of shows up and it's like, whoa, where'd this guy come from? Uh, he's not been mentioned at all in the book up until this point. And so we'll get into him in a second. But just kind of to bring us up to speed. So Job had his response, his last response, to his three friends last week. And so just to kind of summarize from like a spiritual formation perspective, he's in a dark night of the soul. And so when we talk about like a dark night of the soul, it's one of those things that like mystics discuss um, of that those times in your life when you're suffering so greatly that you feel completely alone and cut off, that you're not hearing God, you're not experiencing God. Uh, we see that with Jesus, like when he was on the cross. And we will, at the end of class, we'll read Psalm 22, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when we look at that psalm, we see that he wasn't forsaken, that God never turned his face from him, but he felt that way. And so his experience as a human was feeling completely alone. And so this is where Job is, where he's saying, I am completely alone. He goes through, he names everything about his former life that he misses. You see him naming, like, even going to the market, even his interactions with people, even the charitable work he did, all these different pieces uh, that he had that he's naming and mourning and grieving. And in the midst of that, he also names, like, he misses this intimacy with God. Like, he misses this daily walk with God of, like, experiencing God's presence in all of these different places. And so he names his dark night of the soul in chapters 29 through 30. Um, you'll look at that as part of, in spiritual formation, we talk about that as part of uh, purgation. It's part of, like, um, losing some attachments to things that uh, can become disordered. And so you go through that part, and we'll talk about this more later, of, like, losing some of those attachments in that dark night that really sensitizes you to the presence and love of God. And I want to be really careful how I say that because I don't believe that God makes us suffer but i think god is with us in the suffering that i think suffering is one of those things that there's a lot of mystery around it but that i don't have that image of god that god is like making us suffer and so but he loves us and is with us in it and we'll see that through jesus and other things as well and then through his suffering we're noticing and if you notice like in his response that he's actually becoming more aware of god's presence so he doesn't understand it. He's confused. Um, at the bottom, I have a quote from Eugene Peterson where he's confused but confident, bewildered but believing, and he's worn out by the waiting, but he's waiting still. So you see this, like he's exhausted. He's, he's hanging in there with God. He doesn't understand, and he still has this, this faith and this trust in God. When I was in vacation Bible school, we always, one of our questions was like, who had the most patience? You know, and that was always the Job answer, right? And, and looking through this and kind of re-examining it, I, you know, patience may be one of his things, but I really think faith, like his faith is amazing, that through all of this, he really keeps his faith in God. And faith is messy. You know, it's not clean. It's not saying all the spiritualized right things. It's being honest and visceral. And, and that's what he is with God. Like he's not holding anything back. He's asking all the hard questions, and God is with him in that. And so there's just a real, there's a real sweetness in that through, through some of those really hard parts. And so he's sensitive to the majesty and the mystery of God. And so that's one of those things the dark night of, of the soul talks about a lot of 
you you lose some of these um, these frameworks that you may have. I know I had a really strong framework growing up, like a transactional relationship with God. Um, even, and oh gosh, I even hate to admit this, but there's a, I have a, an author, and I can't remember their name right now, that talks about that sometimes in a lot of evangelical Christianity is kind of a modern version of making sacrifices to the gods. And so if, it's one of those things of like, oh, we do this so that bad things don't happen. And it's kind of a, a primitive view of God that got translated over here. And I, I heard that, and I, I kind of was taken aback by it at first. But then I started thinking about it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, there are some elements of that, of like, well, did you pray? Did you do this? Did you? And it's almost like these systems we have in place to try to make ourselves feel like we've done all the right things so that God will do his part and do these different pieces. When God is really so much bigger than that, and so much, uh, God's goodness is so much more than that, and it's hard, and there's difficulty, and there's all this messiness that's kind of in that. And so whenever we try to make it super clean and super transactional, then we're, we're taking away some of who God is. And so, um, yeah, just that whole big kind of messy piece around that of like the majesty of God, this overwhelming awe of who God is, and then also the mystery of God, of recognizing I can't know all of who God is. Um, in fact, like they, in spiritual formation, they talk about spiritual formation happens when you reach the end of all you know. And I think a lot of people I've talked with and in my own spiritual journey, it was like when I reached the end of all I knew, that was when spiritual formation happened. That's when transformation happens, is because you, you can't go any further on your own. And so the need for God is so great in there for him to move into that. Um, Eugene Peterson, I love him, and he talks about that spiritual sensitivity is a great gift of suffering, uh, but humility is required to receive it. And I wanted to make sure how I defined humility, because I think sometimes in, a, in Christianity, or at least in Western Christianity, we define humility as kind of like this self-depreciation. And God never degrades us. Like, God never degrades our humanity. He never degrades who we are. Uh, we are beloved children. And so we are fully human, fully God's children, fully loved. And the humility is, is in who we really are, not less than who we are. And so I think a lot of times I'll hear people say, you know, really ugly things about themselves. Like, well, I'm just so stupid, you know, and God. It's like God never calls you that. You know, but then there's the other piece of it, too, of like the pride and the control and the arrogance of when we think we're in charge or we think that if we do these things, we can control. And that can even be in the guise of some of that. And so humility is recognizing who God is and who we are in, in truth in both of those, not less. We're not um, we always called it worm theology when I was talking about it, like, oh, I'm a horrible worm. And it's like. God doesn't call you that. You know, you aren't a worm. You are a beloved child. And he says over and over again that I want children, not slaves. And so we are beloved children, loved and seen and known, and we are children. You know that God is God, is God and we are children. And so part of that humility is fully recognizing who we are. And I love how Job does that. Like he doesn't degrade himself. Um, he goes through and he's honest of like, I did this. If I didn't, you know, tell me that I did this. You know, he, he knows who he is, and then he also knows who God is. And so that's a big part of that last part. And so, um, so humility is the absence of pride or arrogance. 
which says, I will do it myself. Or I am in control of this. And if I do this, then God will do this. Because that's kind of that control piece we talked about before. Okay, so that's when last we left Job. He said his piece. He was done. His three friends, he had responded. And then here drops in Elihu, which must have been sitting there the whole time. Um, there's lots of different discussions about scholars with Elihu, and I think uh, that may have been covered a little bit last week, but we can talk a little bit about that. It's, it's kind of just one of those scholarly debates. It's not really applicable um, to much of except the scholarly debates. Um, he's obviously younger than the other three. He kind of comes in here at the end. And what was interesting to me about Elihu is that he takes a little bit different tone. And so as we get into Elihu, we will notice that he takes more of a prophetic tone. So he's remained silent. He's obviously, it says that he's younger than the other three. And, and then he talks about and speaks from, the spirit within me compels me. And then he, he, he talks about, um, my words come from an upright heart. My lips speak sincerely what I know. The spirit of God has made me the breath of the, God, of, of the Almighty gives me life. And so he is taking this different stance. And so let's go ahead and read the first part of chapter... 32? Sure. Can you read that for me, Becky? Where do you want me to end? Uh, go ahead and read. Go ahead and read that whole first chapter. It's not that long. Okay. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Bereshel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, but when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he became angry. Elihu, son of Bereshel, the Buzite, answered, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But truly, it is the spirit in a mortal, the breath of the Almighty that makes for understanding. It is not the old that are wise, nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. See, I waited for your words, I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, but there was in fact no one that confuted Job. No one among you that answered his words, yet do not say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a human. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And am I to wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will give my answer. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. My heart is indeed like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins. It is ready to burst. I must speak so that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any person or use flattery towards anyone, for I do not know how to flatter, or my maker would soon put an end to me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what do you notice about Elihu? What kind of stands out to you off the bat? He seems to be trying to do the right thing by listening to yeah, very good. So he seemed to be doing the right thing. Like he was trying to learn, be respectful, listen to the older people. Absolutely. That's good. What else do you notice? But he's given up on them. Yeah. 
<laughs> he's, he's, he's had enough of that. Yeah. Yeah, he's given up on them. He's had enough of that. It's good. So wisdom and age are not necessarily together. It's wonderful. And you hear him saying that too. <coughs> Does he another hand over here? Anything else you notice about Elihu? Yes. I was just thinking just a little bit more. The writer is bringing out the very thing that a lot of people have conflict with when they're dealing with what to say to somebody who's suffering. Right. I gotta say something. I gotta speak. Yeah. And, and all those may be the things that he shouldn't do, but yeah. still, he, he describes that inner talk, turmoil. I bet everybody else talk. I bet him say something. Yeah. I've got to say something. Yeah. And that may be just the very thing that That's perfect. Experience. Yeah, no, that's great. And even how he's describing it, I feel like I'm going to burst. You know, like I'm wine skins about to burst. I've got the words, and I've got to use them. Yeah, so I think that's perfect. And he says, it's my opinion. Like, yeah. That's the thing that I, like, he's, he's saying, like, yeah. I'm not necessarily going to speak anything, you know, but this is my opinion. This is what is, this is what's burning inside me to actually say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. All of these are really, really good. And then what do you notice? Like he he's saying the spirit of God, and then we know from like the narration in the first the first few verses that he's very angry. And so, uh, noticing within yourself, have you ever? And that, that I am so guilty of this. Like I do it all the time. The things I feel most passionate about a lot of times come from anger. Like I will feel that anger and then my husband's in the room, he can, he can, he can testify to this of like, I get very articulate when I'm angry, you know, of like I have all the words. Like I was laughing when I, when I read him saying that because it was like, oh yeah, when I'm angry, I have all the words, all the words, and they are just busting to come out. And so am I the only one alone in that? Of like when we're angry, do we have all the words? Yes, all the words. And so noticing, like, I felt like that was a huge thing I noticed in this, of noticing where our words come from. You know, if they come from a place of anger, um, I was reading a book about the seven deadly sins, and it was talking about how we've gotten so addicted to anger and outrage that really there's a, there's a wise movement to not respond in any anger. You know, anger is an emotion, and you feel it, and it's, it's noticing that, examining where that anger is coming from but being very careful how we wield that anger because a lot we've gotten so used to um, using that as energy and power and we mistake it sometimes for the spirit of God or the voice of God and when you look at Jesus he did get angry and he did do something with that in the temple 
But most of the time, like, he held it and responded in different ways. And so that was one of those huge things for me of just noticing, okay, I need to look at my anger, really notice if that's where I'm speaking out of, because we'll, and we'll talk about this in a second, that, yeah, yeah, yes, we see that too, yeah. He's not only angry with his friends, Yeah. but he's kind of given Job grief for not defending God. Yes. So Job's in his place here too. Both of them. Yeah, he's like, I'm mad at Job, I'm mad at the friends, I'm doing all, yeah, all of those things. And he's really kind of defending God. So he feels like, and I mean, do we ever feel more righteous than we feel like we're defending God? Am I the only one in that of like really feeling like, man, I can, I can get some heavy self-righteousness going if I feel like I'm speaking for God or defending God, right? And, and I think what we'll notice in this is like he's, he's kind of, he's stepping on the wounded, you know, these are people who are already wounded. And we'll look at his speech a little bit later on. He does a beautiful job of, like, describing God. They, they talk about it being one of the most beautiful doxologies in all the Old Testament. The problem was, like, the situation. You know, that when people are suffering and people are hurting, that um, one of the, the notes that I read, it talked about we need to speak. It was a pastoral note of being very careful when we are sitting with people who are suffering, not to talk too much about God. And that feels counterintuitive, right? Like as, as Christians, we're like, whoa, 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 no. When, it's never a bad time to talk about God. And, and it's not. And noticing what fits that situation. And I think God is really clear. Even in Romans, Paul talks about weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so the pastoral note in that was sometimes silence and weeping is much more healing than a sermon. And let me throw this out there. How many of you all have ever been hurting or grieving a tremendous loss or pain or suffering from whatever avenue and someone has given you a sermon instead of tears or companionship? How does it feel? It makes you worse. It does. It does. It makes you feel worse. And it makes you, there's actually a word in psychology that's called toxic positivity. And that's what it is. It's like, it's that toxic positivity of like, it actually makes you feel more alone. And then there's some guilt and shame for good measure because obviously you aren't right with God either because you don't get God or you would be rejoicing in the suffering. Ugh. Which is really, really rough and really yuck. And, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think Yes, they so did. They covered the bases, but then, yeah. then they waited. Yeah. Then they started with the words. Because that does get uncomfortable, I'm, I'm guessing, after seven days of silence. And so, noticing that, too, of, like, our internal shift of, like, when we feel uncomfortable, what are our go-to moves? Like, I notice that within myself of when I'm sitting with somebody and they're hurting, and I start feeling uncomfortable with that, then I start teaching or I start, you know, moving into that space and trying to notice that within myself so that I can be there with them and be with, there with them well in that space. Because it's a self-protective move, right? Of um, When we are with people and they're suffering, it changes us. If we can leave our heart open, then we are changed by that suffering as well. And that is really vulnerable. 
it's really vulnerable to leave your heart open and suffer with and be in that space. Because the truth of it is, and I hope I'm not just speaking for myself, when people are hurting and they're asking these hard questions like Job is asking, that kind of gets into our stuff and it's starting that, you know, questions that we may also have and that we don't want to deal with. And so the move to that is like, well, let me, let me pull out my intellect and really get here with you and like, you know, go through all the things. And I, I have done that too. If I even got called out. I'm a spiritual director and um, I had a directee. I need to back up a little bit. I lost my dad about a year and a half ago. And when he was going through his cancer treatments, I had a directee who had just lost her dad um, with a heart very suddenly. And so she was processing through her pain and part of her process made me really uncomfortable because she was naming all the things that I didn't want to think about. And so my way of handling that was I started, um, and I have to, you know, report, like, write down different interactions and stuff to hand over to my supervisor for them to give me feedback on how I'm doing. And my supervisor said, wow, she really got into your stuff. And I was like, how do you, how do you pick up on that? Because, like, I thought I did a great job. Like, I knew I got into my stuff, but, man, I switched gears. I made it all about her. I made sure I did all the check, 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 check. And they're like, uh, well, you started teaching about world religions. Was that part of what she brought up? And I was like, oh, no, I, that is not part of what we were supposed to do. But it made me uncomfortable. And so I was trying to name some things for her. And it was not being with her in that space. And I felt her shift uh, when we were in that. And so I was not being a good companion in that grief. And so that's one of those things, like sitting with people, how we treat people and suffering, of noticing in ourselves, like, this is making me uncomfortable. This may be bringing up some things that I don't want to deal with or think about. And so, and that's something to take to God, you know, of like noticing that and being with people. And also, just to name part of this too, people who have really suffered. I had a boss um, who had lost a 12-year-old daughter, um, and it was very sudden. She had, it was one of those medical weird things. She woke up with a stomach virus, they thought, and then she was in a coma by that night, and then she passed away six months later. Um, and then from that, he had a, his older son was watching her when she got sick, and so he had a lot of ungrieved grief. He had a lot of pain from that. He became an alcoholic. Uh, one day driving home, he hit somebody, um, while he was driving and, and killed them. So he went to prison and was dealing with all of, of that. And then his youngest daughter, there were three children, the youngest daughter um, had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was 30. And so they walked through her with that. And so just tremendous suffering and tremendous redemption, beautiful things that, that happened after that process. But man, he could sit with you in grief like no other. You know, there was nothing that made him uncomfortable he understood, you know, what it felt like to be in that. And a lot of that came from people unable to sit with them as they walk through such hard things. And um, he even talked about, like, his daughter, the teacher, very well-meaning, had said, don't bring up her sister because this is really painful for her. And so she went back to school, and then nobody mentioned her losing her sister, and she felt like no one cared. And so part of their, their mission in life was to, to work with people in grief. And so... All the things you named are true. And, man, I'll tell you, Elihu got in my stuff because I could see myself in Elihu of, like, man, I've got all the words. I can't believe Job got it wrong. I can't believe his friends got it wrong, and I'm going to burst. I love that image of, like, wineskins bursting. And he, he names it Spirit of God. The narrator names it as anger. 
And so I was like, okay, that is a really good discernment piece of noticing. Is this anger or is this the Spirit of God? And it's been my experience that if I get that rush of anger, I have to know within myself that to let that sit and take that to God. And then when I do feel like God has given me something, there's a lot of peace with it, which is a very different feeling than like that about to burst feeling. And so that just noticing that within ourselves, Elihu gives us a great example of that. Um, so discernment. I, in some of the commentaries I read, I found this so fascinating. It talked about Elihu comes right before God's response. And so you almost have like two interpretations, like two spiritual interpretations. And they paralleled it to the serpent in the garden, which I felt like was kind of harsh until I looked at it. And I was like, oh, you know, it kind of is. It's like somebody speaking for God versus God speaking. And you have to discern which of those you'll listen to. And so Eve was not present when God gave the command, and so he's, she's hearing this from the serpent, and it gives her a little bit different perspective that we know from the narrator. And then Elihu is speaking from God. Like, he, he is speaking, saying, oh, I'm filled with the Spirit of God. This is what God, you know, I'm, I'm defending God here. And then God does speak. And so it's like discerning those two voices. Uh, when we talk about discernment, and I feel like this is something that's been really helpful for me, and so I will offer it. Uh, when you hear or experience something, and push back on this and give me examples if you think about it, if it's something from God, it increases faith, hope, and love. Even if it's something really hard. Like I've been convicted of things or things I'm not doing, I'm not doing right, but it's almost like that feeling of like when you have a trigger point and somebody pushes on it, when it's God doing it, it feels like there's some relief to it. And it's like, okay, that, that is from God. And then you can move into that. If it does not increase faith, hope, and love, if it increases fear, if it increases uh, self-righteousness, if it increases um, anger or separation of, from relationship or different things like that, that is not of God. And so there's lots of verses that talk about the accuser. Uh, we see lots of examples in, in scripture of how um, <clears throat> Satan and, and his minions work. And it's always like to shame and accuse and to, uh, to separate you from God and from people. And so those two voices can sound very similar. And we see that even in the garden of like, did God really say that? Or, you know, all these little doubts that kind of go in there. And that did not increase faith, hope, and love. When he spoke those things to Eve, it increased fear. And, oh, I'm not getting something that's due me. And so it's a different move away from God. And so that's just a tool that I found to be helpful of like, is this increasing faith, hope, and love? Or is this moving me away from faith, hope, and love? Any questions about that or any pushback on that? That's just kind of a little tool that I found helpful. Helps me to discern that anger versus spirit-led stuff as well. All right. So, Elihu's anger. Let's just get right into it. I love, we talked about that part. And then we named why he was angry. And then what should we notice about our own anger? We did good. We're great. And so, toxic positivity. Um, beautiful doxology. And even noticing how that shows up in our own language when we sit with people of, well, at least it's not this. Or, uh, look on the bright side, there's always this. 
None of those help anybody who's suffering feel better. Have you ever been on the other side of that? Of kind of how we move with people in that? Have you ever had somebody, something really horrible happen and they're like, well, at least? Okay. Yes. Um, and to name something that kind of comes out of our Protestant tradition, there, um, way back, there, there came a shift from uh, when people died, uh, came a little bit from Calvinism, that if you were sad or if you weren't assured of your salvation, uh, then you were judged in kind of a weird way. And so people stopped grieving and mourning like they had previously. And so it became a thing of, and we have a lot of it in our tradition of like, oh, I'm so happy that they are with their reward or let's celebrate. Um, have y'all been at funerals that have kind of focused on that? And how does it feel when you're there and you're kind of getting some of that? Am I the only one that gets creeped out by it? <laughs> it, it feels weird, right? And I'll name for my own family, and it's my mom's theology, and she, she did love my mom. She did great where she was, but when my dad passed away and all of us were crying in the family room afterwards, she stopped everybody and said, no more. We're not going to cry anymore. He is, you know, he has earned his reward. He is with God. We are happy about that, and we're moving on. And it was like, whew, we haven't even left the funeral home yet. You know, like, it's okay to be sad. You need to be sad. And so, um, just noticing those things are not helpful. What they tend to do is just kind of cram stuff down, and then that comes out in weird ways later. And so those, letting those feelings come out, being honest about those feelings. And then um, Eugene Peterson, who I love, he makes that note about how silence is more eloquent than speech and tears more effective than theology of when we're with people. And we see that with Jesus. You know, we don't see Jesus theologizing people uh, when he's healing them or when Mary and Martha um, when he's getting ready to raise Lazarus that's one of my favorite things around grief he doesn't walk in and say oh, dry your tears this is all going to be good in a second just hold on to your hats just wait he doesn't do that like he sees them and it says he's deeply moved in his spirit and that he has this anger toward death because he created he created us. He created the world, and this is not what he created it for. He did not want death to be a part of it. And so he's deeply moved in that, that people are suffering that way. And he weeps. He weeps with them. And he knew all the things. And if anybody had a right to, like, theologize or say, hey, it's going to be all right, be happy, he's coming right back, uh, it was Jesus. And he did not. Like, he was right with them in their grief. So God suffers with is kind of where I wanted us to end today. Um, there's That was a huge shift in my theology of a God that's kind of up high and does things to us to this beautiful image. And I think Becky will talk more about image of God next week. Um, to this beautiful God who chose, I think with... Um, with Jesus, we focus a lot on his crucifixion, which we absolutely should. And Jesus suffered and endured suffering his whole life. He experienced all those things that we as humans do. Um, there's a prayer that sometimes I will pray if I'm going through something really hard and I feel like um, I feel very alone in it. And I will pray and just ask Jesus, Jesus, show me or bring to mind 
a time when you felt this way. And most of the time something will pop right into my head and even if I don't understand it, I'll go back and read it and I'll be like, oh, okay. So you were alone. Like your friends did not understand you. We forget that as he was going to Jerusalem, you know, we go transfiguration, but we skip all the times where he's telling them, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But who gets to be first? Like, I want to be your VP, man. You know, of like, and he keeps saying no. Like, and you can see like there's, there's suffering in that. And even alone in the garden, like they didn't understand him. They didn't get him. His own family, you know, they wanted him to come home because they thought he was crazy. You know, he had to leave them and lose some of those relationships for a time. So there's all these pieces of, of humanness with Jesus that are really beautiful places where he suffers with us and he understands us. He gets us in those moments. Um, and so if you guys are game, we have eight minutes. Mm-hmm. That, um, three minutes, really. Oh, we have three minutes. Okay, perfect. We'll do it one time. Um, that I wanted to do a Lectio with Psalm 22. This was pivotal for me. Psalm 22 is the one that Jesus quotes on the cross. And all good Jews would have known when he started, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this was the beginning of this, this psalm. It's kind of like if we, um, like, what, I don't even know. The first verse of like Old Rugged Cross, if we start singing it, you know, people are going to finish it. They know how it goes. So this in Jewish culture was part of that. And just noticing... Um, just listen, see what sparkles for you, and see if you notice anything maybe you haven't noticed before of what you see in the psalm as far as like Jesus and, um, and just how God suffers with, how God sees us. So go ahead and close your eyes. Take some deep breaths. I'll read through it kind of slow, kind of not, because we've got three minutes. But if you would like to go back later, sometimes that's really helpful. To just pray over, you know, God, why? Why did you bring this to mind? Why, why did this sparkle for me? What do you have for me in there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by people, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him, since he, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. 
Many bulls surround me. Strongholds of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. <coughs> my heart has turned to wax and is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All of my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. At the end of the earth, will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to people yet unknown. He has done it. Thank you for coming today, and I'm here if you have any questions or want to hang around and talk about anything. But blessings.